Many of our days are filled with delays. We have a schedule to keep, and something keeps us from keeping our schedule. Something interrupts the flow of a normal day of our regular life, and usually that brings irritation. If we consider the change in our schedule minor, we might have mild irritation. If we, if we consider the interruption to be something major, well, then we might have complete aggravation. But you and I get pretty upset, don't we, when delays come our way. I mean, think of it. If you fly uh, on a regular basis, especially if you fly for your business, you know what it is to go through all of the checkpoints and finally be loaded onto the plane, taxi to the runway, you sit on the tarmac for two hours. And you just cringe when you hear the pilot say, uh, I have something I need to tell you. We are in a delay. How long is it going to be? I have no idea how long the delay is going to be. But you know it is, you're going to miss your connecting flight. And the rest of the day of the trip just seems to be ruined. And you see people who are a little irritated. And then, of course, as the delay goes longer, they get really agitated. And sometimes that breaks out even in violence. You and I go to the doctor's office, and for the first time, we're on time, but he isn't. And he might be doing something no, noble and worthy, like saving someone's life, but we're not too concerned about that because we've got a schedule to keep, and he's late. And the delays bother us. But I think what bothers us sometimes even more than this are the delays of God. Now, we know that God is somehow over all of our lives as believers. Everything that takes place... He's in control. But what I mean by the delays of God are those slow answers to our prayers and slow fulfillment related to his promises. And those delays of God irritate us and sometimes truly aggravate us. And we ask, why, God? Why is this happening well, when we open our Bibles to 2 Peter chapter 3, God has some wonderful insight for us, some insight that will help us live wise and godly lives in the last days. 2 Peter chapter 3. And some of it has something to do with his delays. You'll notice in verse 1, he says, Dear friends, this is now my second letter to you. I have written both of them as reminders to stimulate you to wholesome thinking. I want you to recall the words spoken in the past by the holy prophets and the command given by our Lord and Savior through your apostles. So Peter tells us exactly what his purpose is. Very few books, both in New Testament and Old Testament, very few books so clearly give us their purpose as these epistles of Second, First and Second Peter. John's Gospel, he says, these things are written so that you might know that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and knowing this, that you might believe in his name. Peter says, I'm writing two epistles to you. The first kind of focused on suffering. The second focuses on false teaching. 
I'm writing to you believers who are dispersed throughout what is now modern Asia, Asia Minor in that day, and you're being persecuted. I'm writing these things to you to call back to your mind what is really important. If you go back to chapter 1 of uh, 2 Peter, you'll remember in verse 12, he says, I intend to keep reminding you of these things even though you already know them. You're established in these things. But I think it's right as long as I'm still alive to do it. I know soon I'm going to lose my life, he says in verse 14. Jesus has made that clear. So I'm going to take every opportunity before my departure to remind you of what you ought to know so that after my departure, you'll remember these things. And now when he gets to chapter 3, he says the same thing. I want you to recall what was spoken to you through the word of God revealed to the holy prophets, recorded in the scripture. I want to call, recall these things to your mind. In fact, at that time, some of it wasn't recorded in the scripture. So he wanted to stimulate them. The word stimulate means to arouse. Think of it this way. If you're a child, uh, maybe a, a teenager, and you've got a job, and your alarm doesn't go off, and your mom comes into your room and grabs hold of your shoulders and says, wake up, it's time to go to work, you're late. She's trying to arouse you to your responsibilities. When you get married, things don't change. I mean, you forget to wake up when you're supposed to, and your spouse grabs hold of your shoulders and says, wake up to your responsibilities. It's time to get up and get going. And Peter, in a spiritual sense, is grabbing hold of our shoulders and saying, wake up. It's time to get awake. I want to stimulate you. I want to arouse you to your responsibility in these last days. So I want you to recall what was spoken to you. I want you to recall the word of God. In chapter 1, he told us that as Christians, we've been given everything we need to live a godly life. And we can participate in the divine nature. He says we need to add to our faith seven virtues. And he's given us the word of God. This isn't the product of man. It's not cleverly invented stories. Not fabricated by apostles. This was from God given to these holy men. And they wrote it down as the Holy Spirit led them to write. Now in chapter 2 he said false teachers are going to come. They're not like the good apostles. And they don't speak the truth of God's word to you. They distort the truth. They still are religious. And they want you to think that they're ministers of righteousness, but they're in disguise. They're masquerading as God's servants. And they're going to distort this word. Be on your guard. They're deceitful at heart. They're effective in their ministry, and they're destructive in the end. Now he gets to chapter 3, and he says, let's go back to those holy prophets I was telling you about, whose commands, words, come from God, and they come also through your apostles. So what he wants to do is stir up their mind, cause them to remind, remind them at least of two important truths, two truths that will help us live in the last days in such a way 
that the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ will shine through us. The first is he wants them to remember that scoffers will come. Verse 3, first of all, you must understand that in the last days scoffers will come, scoffing and following their own evil desires. In other words, don't be surprised by those who obey the truth. Some Christians really get surprised that so many people attack the word of God. They attack the message of the gospel. They can't comprehend it. My friend, it was predicted by Jesus and through the apostles, and it's found throughout the word of God. In fact, their presence is proof that the word of God is true. The existence of scoffers merely allows us to see that the word of God is reliable and accurate and what it has predicted indeed has come true. The scoffers come in the last days. You say, well, oh, I'm glad it's not the last days yet. Well, I'm sorry uh, to maybe blow, burst your bubble, but we are in the last days. The last days began with the first coming of Christ and the last days end with the second coming of Christ. We're in the last days. You say, well, these last days have gone on for a long time. Yeah, they have. We're going to see why, but they have gone on for a long time. Scoffers were there in Peter's day, and they're here in our day. Understand that everyone who uses the name Jesus is not his friend. Everyone who quotes from the Bible doesn't believe at all. We saw that in chapter 2. We need to be aware of false teachers. So, we're in the last days, and scoffers are going to come. A scoffer is someone who treats lightly that which should be taken seriously. A scoffer is one who mocks at that which is important or eternal. Mockers are those who take the name of God in vain and laugh at his word. That's a scoffer. And they will come scoffing. The Lord gives us their motive. Not always can we know the heart of an individual, but the Lord tells us many of these individuals are motivated by evil desires. In chapter 2, those evil desires were greed, fame, wealth, power, control. Some actually have the intention of leading people astray, but many others just want a following. They want the benefits that they can get from a deceptive ministry. Evil desires, that's what motivates them. By the way, evil desires, that doesn't just include murder and adultery and thievery. Evil desires, that's selfish ambition. An evil desire is any desire that you place, your own desire, that you place above God's. It's selfish desire. And that's what was motivating them. That's the wind that was blowing their sails. That's why they would get up in the morning and work late into the night. They were diligent in their evil work, motivated by evil desires. Notice, secondly, their skepticism. Scripture says in verse 4, they will say, where is this 
coming he promised. Ever since our fathers died, everything goes on as it has from the beginning. And in their skepticism, they just ask questions, questions of doubt. They interject doubt wherever they go. You Christians talk about Jesus coming again, right? Right? Where's the promise of his coming? How long has it been? 2,000 years? Interesting. That's a long time. I think he's forgotten. I think he's changed his mind. I, I think he doesn't care anymore. I think he'd like to help you out. He just can't. And they scoff and make light of that which is very serious. The second coming of Jesus Christ. Notice they hide behind this philosophy of uniformity, verse 5. They basically say, since God created this world, everything has continued on as it has been. There's been no divine intervention. God's the, the master clockmaker. He made this world like a clockmaker makes a beautiful timepiece. He winds it up, and then he steps back and lets it go. No more involvement. God probably does look down from the portals of heaven, and he's grieved that he's made mankind like this, and he says, oh, I wish I could do something about it, but I can't. It's out of my hands. I wound up the world, and now it's ticking on its own. There's nothing I can do. The philosophy of uniformity says God is distant. He's not involved. He will not interrupt the flow of history. He will not intervene in the affairs of men. And that's kind of the basic approach of science. Warren Wiersbe says this. They take the scientific approach, that is, they examine the, examine, they examine the evidence, apply reason to what they learn, and draw conclusions. But they willfully are ignorant of a large amount of evidence. Remember, science is only an educated conclusion based on a limited number of experiments and tests. The laws of science are generalizations always subject to change. Now, true science is no enemy of Scripture. But science can only study what it can see, what it can observe. It will repeat experiments over and over and over again and then form conclusions. But many of those conclusions will be changed in a decade. Just read the textbooks from 10 years ago. They've been thrown out by the scientists. What's the problem? It's man's best finite attempt to explain the infinite. And yet they're not using infinite truth. So it's always going to come up short. This theory of uh, philosophy of uniformity is destroyed by history. Look at verse 6. Well, verse 5 says de they deliberately forget. By the way, there are several reasons for people to be ignorant Sometimes people are ignorant because they don't have the opportunity to learn the truth. Sometimes people are ignorant because they don't have the ability to learn the truth. I fit into that category. <laughs> There's some areas of philosophy and science and biology and, and uh, you know, the 
theory of relativity and all of these. I'll never understand those things because I have a limited capacity that somehow doesn't traffic very well in the depths of that type of study. Some people are ignorant because they're indifferent. Did the Tigers win yesterday? I don't care. I never look. Who are the Tigers? Never been to the zoo. <laughs> You're just indifferent because you don't care. And that's all right. Some people are indifferent because they're afraid of the truth. Or ignorant because they're afraid of the truth. And that's the category these people are in. Notice it says in verse 5, they are willfully ignorant. They choose not to know. I'll never forget when I sold one of my daughter's cars that was in my name to an individual. This was, I don't know, maybe 10 years ago. And the individual came to our house and we were going to sign over the, uh, the title. And it was at that time, not before then, but at that time, that this person found out that I was a minister. I try to keep that quiet, especially, you know, when you're selling a car. I don't know why. And they found that I was a minister, and it was obvious from something they were wearing that they weren't too interested in God. And the person actually said that to me. You can tell that I'm not interested in God. And I said, well, I really don't know, but uh, that's an interesting point. I said, why aren't you interested in God? And they went on about all the abuses of the church and why they're not a Christian. And I said, well, I agree. The church has abused many people. The church has sinned in many ways. But I said, that doesn't mean that the truth is not the truth. And God's a God of mercy and love. And I said, here, why don't you take this New Testament? Read about Jesus yourself. And this person said, no, I don't want to know. Because then I'll be accountable. I don't want to know. I don't want to be exposed. You know why people don't come to church? Many reasons. One of the reasons, and this is a reason for a lot of people, they don't want to be exposed to the light. Their deeds are evil. They love the darkness if they come to the church they might be exposed email came my way recently from someone who attended south and came from that perspective so these people are willfully ignorant of the truth there's a whole body of evidence they will not even examine because they love the darkness rather than the light but the word of God tells us, yeah, God created the world. It was created by his word. Verse 6. And, and the world was formed out of the water. Verse 6. And by these same waters, the world was destroyed. It was deluged. By the way, the Greek word for deluge is where we get the English word cataclysmic. It's almost a direct transliteration. The world at that time was flooded in Noah's day and destroyed. So things have not continued on as they have from the beginning. God intervened in judgment. And by the same word that created the heavens, the present heavens and earth are being scheduled. They're reserved. They're in reserve. They're waiting their scheduled day of judgment. Not by water. God promised he'd never destroy the earth by water again. This time by fire. The present heavens and earth are being kept for a day of judgment and of destruction 
of ungodly people. Around the fringes of what we call evangelicalism, around the edges of the Bible-believing church community are those who are beginning to say there is no final judgment of the wicked. There is no place of punishment. Everyone will be saved. The Bible says a day of judgment is coming and the ungodly will be destroyed just like they were in the days of Noah. And if God judged his son on the cross when he became our sin bearer, he must punish sin if he is a just God. So they've forgotten all of these things. They're willfully ignorant of these things. Remember that when you live in the last days. A lot of people are going to be scoffers and they're motivated by sinful desires and they're skeptical about the truth and they're going to throw that back in your face. But they're ignorant. They're not the enemy. They're victims of the enemy. Remember that. There's something else Peter says I want you to remember and that's the second main point. Also, I want you to remember why Jesus hasn't come yet. I mean, after all, it's been 2,000 years, right? I read in the Bible about soon this, and the coming of the Lord is near. He's at the door. These are phrases of Scripture. And and many believers, I'm sure, in the first century thought the coming of Christ would happen before they died. Why hasn't Jesus come yet? Two reasons. The first is chronological. It's a matter of timing. Verse 8, don't forget this one thing. Don't forget, dear friends, that with the Lord a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. That's a quotation from the one psalm that Moses wrote, or at least the one that was recorded in Scripture. Psalm 90, verse 4. For a thousand years in your sight are like a day that has gone by, or a watch in the night. You see, God's frame of reference is different from ours. And the sooner you and I understand that, the easier it will be to handle the difficulties and delays of life. His frame of reference is different from ours. God's never in a hurry, and he is never late. He works in time, but he's not confined by time. The Bible says in the fullness of time, God sent forth his son. Jesus was born right on time. Jesus, when he was living, said, my hour has not yet come. My hour has not yet come. My hour has come. Jesus wasn't late. He was right on time. God works in time, but he's never confined by time. He is over time. He's separate from time. And for him... Our time is but a short time. We are immortal, which means we had a beginning, but we'll never have an ending. God is eternal. He never had a beginning. He'll never have an ending. So his frame of reference has got to be a little different. Think of it this way. Think of, a, think of the difference of, of the frame of reference of time having to do with Christmas, the difference between a parent and a child. You and I parents are getting things ready for Christmas. Ah, 
I can't believe it's December. I haven't even started shopping. I haven't even thought about shopping. I don't know what I'm going to get for all these people. And we began to get all upset because it's happening so quickly. I can't believe it's December. Soon it's going to be Christmas. Your 10-year-old child has a different frame of reference. Three days before Christmas. When is it ever going to come? It'll never be here. Three whole days. I can't wait. And yet they do. It's the difference of our frame of reference. You go on vacation and you're having a good time and time ceases to exist. Right? Someone says to you what time it is. I don't know. When's your next appointment? I don't have any. Haven't even looked at my day timer. Haven't even looked at my iPad. I don't even know what day it is it might be wednesday it might be thursday i don't know and what's more i don't care time ceases to exist now if you're having a rough time on vacation it's the exact opposite for god one day in his time frame it's like a thousand years of ours why if you think of a young earth being several thousand years old we're only at the end of week one maybe entering week two no big deal for God. That great hymn written by Isaac Watts, O God, our help in ages past, our hope for years to come. He spans time. As far back as you can go, as far ahead as you can go, God is sovereign over time. And one of those great stanzas says, A thousand ages in your sight are like an evening gone, short as the watch that spans the night. Before the rising sun. Just a matter of timing. God hasn't forgotten. He hasn't changed his mind. He's not indifferent to his promises. It's not that he's trying to fulfill them, but doesn't have the power to do so. It's a matter of timing. And here's another reason for his delay in sending his son. It's a matter of mercy. Look at verse 9. The Lord is not slow or slack or tardy in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. He is patient with you. I love that verse. He is patient with you. Who is the you? You. God is patient with you. Hasn't he been patient with you? God is patient with you, and he doesn't want anyone to perish. He takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked, Ezekiel says. Paul wrote to Timothy, and he said, There's one God and one mediator between God and man, his name Christ Jesus, and he gave himself as a ransom for everyone. He doesn't want you to perish. He wants you to be saved. And you might be indifferent, and maybe you don't care, but he does. And that's why he's slow, as we count slowness. That's why he's waiting. If you went back to 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 20, it says that God waited patiently in the days of Noah. How long? 120 years. That's pretty patient. 
Why are you still here? Why are you still breathing? When friends your own age have lost their lives, it's because God is patient with you. And he doesn't want you to perish. He wants you to repent. That means turn from your sin. Turn from trusting anything but Jesus and cast yourself wholly upon his love and mercy and grace. That's why he is waiting. There was a motive given for the false teachers, the scoffers. They're motivated by evil desires. There's a motive here given by God. He is motivated by love and mercy and grace. Oh, the mercy of God. Don't abuse it. Don't abuse the grace of God. Don't think the loving kindness of God something that you can mock and scoff at. His loving kindness is giving you space to repent. And he longs to see you turn to him. Some delays are actually good. Right? I came across this article after 9-11. Pretty astounding. This is what happened to some people who worked at the Twin Towers but didn't die with the hundreds and thousands who did on that horrible day of devastation and terrorism. The head of a large company survived 9-11 because as he was going to work in the Twin Towers, he wanted to take his young boy to kindergarten. It was the first day, and he was late to work. The delay saved his life. Another guy was late because it was his turn to bring the donuts to work. Someone else, their alarm didn't go off. Another party was stuck on the New York or New Jersey turnpike because of an auto accident. Someone missed their bus. Someone else missed a taxi. Another person had a car that wouldn't start. None of them got to work on time, and they're alive because of it. One person had a child that dwaddled so much that they couldn't get the child ready to go to school, and so they were late getting the child to school and late getting to work. And it saved their life. I can just imagine that parent coming home that night and hugging that child. Thank you for not going to school on time. (laughs) Just this once. Yeah, that's mercy. One man bought a pair of new shoes. He was walking through Manhattan, got a blister on his big toe, stopped at a pharmacy to get a Band-Aid, was late to work, and alive because of it. Sometimes delays are good. Sometimes they save lives. And I want you to know that the delay of God is intended to save you. Let's pray. Oh, Father, thank you for giving your word that gives us light, that informs us how we should live in the last days. We know scoffers will come. We shouldn't be surprised by them. We know they're motivated by evil desires, that they will doubt your word, that they don't have an understanding of history or divine truth. They're not the enemy. They're victims of the enemy. But Lord, help us to understand that you've delayed your coming not because you're tardy or late or slow or indifferent or forgetful, but because you're merciful 
and loving. You're not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance and faith. Lord, I pray that that will happen today. In Jesus' name, amen.